Welcome everyone, come in, get your seat. You should have some notes. This is part two of a series on denominations. How did we get here? My thought behind this when I started this was that we come into a church like our church and maybe a, a person is a new Christian and they, they wonder about what, what about these other denominations, these Episcopalians and Methodists and, and Presbyterians, where did they come from and what do they believe, things like that. So uh, I did uh, part one uh, about a month ago, unfortunately. <laughs> And uh, here is part one here. If you didn't get part one, you can uh, pick it up right over here afterward. And uh, part one is online. It's, uh, we have it, the session online and the notes are online too. So you can get them online or you can pick up a copy here. So uh, this is part two. Uh, and let me just have some introductory matters before we begin. This, I'm going to review last time, so if you weren't here, uh, I'm going to give you the highlights uh, that uh, I covered last time I think will be important for going forward. So last time we traced the origin of the church up to about the year 1500, up until the time of the Reformation. And I mentioned that during that time, the early church was persecuted by the Roman government until the Emperor Constantine made uh, Christianity a legal religion. And uh, that was in 312 when he stopped persecuting Christians, stopped, stopped being persecuted. And, you ha and people estimate maybe 6 million Christians by then. Uh, maybe 50 million people in the Roman Empire, 6 million Christians. Ultimately, uh, Christianity became the legalized and, and state religion. So you had the uh, wedding of uh, merging of, of the Christianity and the state. It's the only, became the only approved religion, church state, that we still have with us to this day in many places. Now, there was a couple of developments uh, during this period that are unfortunate developments that uh, are still with us and affect denominations and what they believe and so forth. The first one I mentioned was moving away from the con uh, congregational form of church government to what's called the Episcopal form. So here at CBC, we practice the congregational form of church government, which we believe is the New Testament form. And in this form, the church is governed by the congregation. Ultimately, the ultimate decisions are made by the congregation. We're an autonomous body. We can call pastors and ordain pastors. So we're an elder-led and congregationally governed church. But uh, eventually, uh, the church, as it develops into what we call the Roman Catholic Church, adopted this Episcopal system. And they did this by making a distinction between the office of bishop and pastor. Now, I explained last time, and you've heard it explained here many times, that in the New Testament, there are three words that are used interchangeably to describe the office of pastor. The words are pastor, elder, and overseer. The King James translates that bishop. 
So I am Bishop Combs, Pastor Combs, and Elder Combs, okay? But they're really three different terms used to describe the same person. We have four elders in this church, four overseers, four pastors. But uh, as the church developed, a distinction was made between the bishop or the overseer and the pastor. So the bishop became a higher office and began to control the churches. And uh, you can see the diagram there, the Episcopal form. You have the bishop up top. And really, the congregation no longer is in ultimate control of their decisions. It's the bishop. The bishop ordains who the pastor will be. He actually ordains them. The church doesn't choose them. They may have some input. And this form of government led to one particular bishop becoming supreme in the church, the Bishop of Rome. And that's an unfortunate development that's still with us in churches like the Lutheran Church, uh, especially in Europe, the uh, Episcopal Church, and some other uh, Pentecostal churches have this sort of type of church government. I mentioned C here, the other unfortunate development that happened in the New Church, in, in, in the New Testament um, after 300, well, started in about the third century, but this idea of infant baptism and the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. So uh, over time, the church began to see uh, many people in the church, and it developed into a doctrine in the church that baptism regenerates you. You're born again by baptism. And so they started baptizing infants, and infants, infant baptism became pretty much the standard and is the standard in the Roman Catholic Church. And so eventually, baptism and the Lord's Supper were understood as what's called sacraments. That is, they convey grace, and they're necessary for your salvation, as we heard this morning. Uh, that's the Roman Catholic system today. So these were unfortunate developments. I mentioned in 380, uh, Christianity became the official religion of the empire. And then in 395, the empire was divided into two parts, uh, that is, you had, if you look on uh, figure two there, see the Western Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire. Uh, the empire is divided uh, with two emperors. And so you have uh, a church in the West with the Bishop of Rome. Uh, he becomes, eventually is called the Pope. And then you have an Eastern Empire, an Eastern church, Eastern part of the church with the Bishop of Constantinople. <clears throat> And then we mentioned, uh, eventually, these two divisions of the church split. <clears throat> in 1054, they permanently divided and are still divided today. So you have the Western Church, the Roman Catholic Church with the Bishop of Rome, and then you have the Eastern Orthodox Church, our group of churches. And that division in 1054 is still with us. So by the time we come to, say, 1500, you could say we have two denominations, maybe, Christian denominations. You've got the Roman Catholic Church, you've got the Eastern Orthodox Church, as you can see on figure three there, this great schism of 1054 where they divided. So I mentioned here in F that by the time of the Reformation, you know, um, the Roman Catholic Church had incorporated a lot of false ideas and practices. Uh, I mentioned prayers directed to Mary, to saints, to angels, the veneration of the cross, images, relics, 
canonization of dead people, celibacy of the priesthood, the rosary, the sale of indulgences. I'll talk about that in just a moment, what that is. The reduced time in purgatory, transubstantiation. Remember, that's the doctrine of communion that says the elements of communion are transmuted or tra are changed, transformed into the actual body and blood of Jesus, of Christ. I didn't say they look like it or they seem like it. They're actually <laughs> the elements in the Roman Catholic Church teaches. Those elements in the Mass actually become the body and blood of Christ, which is, of course, false, no question. So these, uh, these, these sacraments, these practices, uh, displace justification by faith and grace, uh, the absolute authority of Scripture was, was done away with, and so you had these religious practices uh, that were necessary for salvation overseen by the church. I mentioned the concept of indulgences here, and you can see this diagram in figure four, uh, which tries to explain that a little bit. So these indulgences rest upon this distinction that's hard to understand exactly between a temporal and eternal punishment. So if you look at that diagram, you'll see that a person is born into the world as a sinner, then the baby is baptized, so now they are, we might say, saved. They're justified. They're in a state of grace. But they quickly lose that when they sin. So if you sin in the Roman Catholic system, then when everybody sins, then uh, you, you lose that state of grace if you commit a mortal sin, particularly. So the Ten Commandments are mortal sins. And if you break a Ten Commandment, then you lost your salvation. And you have to do penance. So the Roman Catholic Church has uh, misinterpreted the word repentance as penance. You have to do penance. You have to go to a priest and confess that. And he might give you, say, do the rosary or say this or give these alms or whatever, whatever works might need, you need to do. And he'll give you absolution. He'll say, te absolvo, and now you're in the state of grace again. But the problem is that doesn't take care of all the punishment for your sin. So it means you don't go to hell now because you're back in the state of grace, but this sacrifice of Christ doesn't take care of all the punishment for your sin. There is still temporal punishment, punishment in time. So you need to be punished. Some of, some of that can be on earth, but most of it's in a place called purgatory. So almost every Roman Catholic, except Mary and saints, they, they're going to a place called purgatory when they die, and there they're going to be punished for this temporal punishment for their sins. So they're not going to hell because they got absolution, but there's still, when, even when you confess to the priest, there's still the remnants of sin. You might think about your sin. You might not fully So there's this temporal punishment, temporal. That means in time, and it means a place called purgatory. Well, the Pope claimed that he could grant relief from this temporal punishment based upon the, the, the fact of Christ's merits, uh, the, the merits of saints, so there are saints who have done more than they needed to be saved. And there's, there's, there's the, the Pope has this treasury of merit. So he has this big box of forgiveness that he can dish out if you, uh, if you, if you get an indulgence. And so uh, 
so by means of this indulgement, a person could be relieved from this temporal punishment in purgatory. And we'll see that's a big reason uh, behind the Reformation, this particular issue. Well, let's talk about the age of the Reformation now. And today we want to talk about uh, two elements of the Reformation, and uh, we'll talk about more next time. So we're here at the page three, the age of the Reformation. I mentioned the Reformation is quite an important event in world history, considered maybe the greatest event after the found, founding of Christianity itself. It really had tremendous religious effects and political effects. It really established modern Europe as we know it today. And it led to the reintroduction of the gospel. Unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church over the years had lost the true gospel. And they still don't have it today. So there's no true gospel in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, you know, I'm sure there are saved people in the Roman Catholic Church. You can get the gospel a lot of ways. You can read your Bible. You can get it on TV. Right? You know, you can pick it up. But the Roman Catholic Church is not going to teach you the true gospel. They're not going to teach you justification by faith and the doctrines you need to be saved. So that was an unfortunate situation, but the Reformation reintroduced the truth of the gospel. Um, I say it's also called here on page four the Protestant Reformation. And uh, Protestantism refers, I say, to this broad system of Christian faith and practices that emerged in the 16th century. Um, it began, it's called the Reformation because it was, the idea was to reform the church. The Roman Catholic Church has become corrupt, bad practices, lost all the truth. So we need to reform it and bring it back to the original New Testament church. The term itself was first used uh, in 1529 to refer to some what's called Lutheran princes who protested against Roman Catholic authorities. Uh, the, these princes were called Puritans. So uh, Luther, Martin Luther, when he began, he was supported by rulers in Germany of small areas, small states, princes. And uh, so when they adopted Lutheranism, the Roman Catholic Church reacted against them, and they called them, you are Protestants. And now today we use the word Protestant really to refer to all Christians who are not associated with the Roman Catholic Church or Eastern Orthodox. We're all Protestants in that sense. And I mentioned there are four major traditions that marked early Protestantism. There's the Lutheran, we'll talk about today, the Reformed, the Anabaptist, and the Anglican. Now, there's a lot of precursors to the Reformation that led up to the Reformation that in God's good providence, he brought along that uh, aided and permitted the Reformation to take place. Uh, one of them was uh, in 1453, the Turks, the Ottoman Turks, Muslims, captured Constantinople. Constantinople was the capital of the Eastern Empire, and they spoke Greek, and they had Greek manuscripts, and they had access to uh, the writings of Greek people like Aristotle and so forth. And when that fell, they came into Europe. They, they came first into Italy. They fled, came to Italy, moved up into Europe. And they brought about a movement of uh, the Renaissance, which refers, I say, to the recovery of the values of classical Greek and Roman civilization expressed in literature. 
And so they enabled people in Europe, scholars, to look at the original sources. They called that odd fontes, to the, to the sources, back to the sources. So instead of looking at the Latin translation Vulgate, which had been corrupted, they were able to look at the original uh, man, uh, Greek language. Now this was all aided by the invention of the printing press in 1450. Now you could, just, you could make copies of all these uh, uh, manuscripts, you could make a Greek New Testament, print it, distribute it, and you could print books and so forth. So the Reformation is made possible by all of these events. I mentioned here in number four here under, on page four that the term evangelical is first used here as a synonym for Protestant. Um, I say the evangelical theology of the reformers is often summed up with these five solos. You've heard that spoken about here. These five Latin phrases that sort of describe the essence of the Reformation to distinguish it from the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, scripture alone, sola scriptura, Christ alone. So the Bible is the supreme authority. Christ is the only way for people to be saved. Faith alone, uh, not works. Grace alone, you know, it's, it's our salvation is due to the grace of God, to the glory of God alone. So God receives all the glory for our salvation. So these five solas uh, kind of represent the, the teachings of the Reformation. And they're still good today. So if, you're, if you ever have to look for a church, I hope you don't. I hope you stay here. But if you ever have to look for a church, just ask them, do you believe in the five solas? If they don't, go somewhere else. <laughs> I mean, this is just foundational truth. The five solas, everybody, true Christian, should believe these. Well, let's talk about the Lutheran Reformation. That's the beginning of the Reformation. I, I see I made a mistake here on... I'll say the Reformation is commonly held to have begun on the evening. I should have said the evening before, I'm sorry, evening before All Saints Day. So All Saints Day was the day when they honored all the saints in the Roman Catholic Church. That's November the 1st. But the evening before, which is called All Hallows' Eve or Halloween, uh, that's when the Luther in 1517 posted his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. Now Luther, I mentioned here, was an Augustinian monk. He was a, that's a monastic order in the Roman Catholic Church, and he was also a priest. Those don't always go together, but he was. He was also a, a scholar. He got his doctor of theology degree at the University of Wittenberg, and then he began to teach there as a professor. Now he was converted, we understand, he says, uh, by reading in 1515, the book of Romans, studying Romans, and Romans 1.17, that famous verse, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as is written, the righteous will live by faith. Uh, Luther wrote about his conversion. He says this, he says, night and day, I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasp that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it came to be inexpressibly sweet and, great and greater love. The passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. So as a normal Roman Catholic... 
Luther believed in salvation by grace plus works. But he came to see that grace, salvation is by grace alone. You're justified by faith alone. So he came to embrace this doctrine that we associate with him, justification by faith alone. Now, he was converted, but he still was a Roman Catholic. He held Roman Catholic, some Roman Catholic doctrines. Um, but he was interested in trying to reform the church. And that's what led to the 95 Theses. The 95 Theses was a series of uh, uh, questions and, and, uh, that he posed uh, for discussion among scholars. So it was, a, it was a disputation about the indulgence system, about these indulgences that the Pope can grant to get people out of purgatory. So he, uh, he posted these 95 Theses you know, on that church door. Uh, he was protesting the fact that the Pope was selling these indulgences to facilitate the building of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Now, I mentioned that one of the most effective salesmen of these indulgences was a man by the name of uh, Johann Tetzel, who was a monk. And in one of his sermons, here's what Tetzel claimed. Here's Tetzel selling these indulgences. You, know, uh, you should know that all who confess and in penance put alms into the coffer will obtain complete remission of all their sins. Why are you standing there? Run for the salvation of your souls. Don't you hear the voices of your wailing dead parents and others who say, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, because we are in severe punishment and pain. From this you could redeem us if, uh, with a small alms, and yet you do not want to do so. Uh, Luther credited Tetzel with this saying, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. So man, naturally, your parents are in purgatory, you know, your wife may be in purgatory, wouldn't you want to give some money to get them out, you know, an indulgence. So he posted these 95 theses, Luther did, for academic discussion. They were in Latin. All scholars wrote in Latin for the then and for the next few hundred years. He didn't really mean them to be spread around, but they were quickly translated into German, and they just went everywhere. Uh, so Luther uh, continued in his study. He, he embraced more Protestant doctrines, more biblical doctrines, uh, and the Roman Catholic Church eventually excommunicated him the, by the Pope in 1521. So Luther is out of the church. He's really, in a sense, starting a new church, a new denomination we think of as the Lutheran Church. And he did all kinds of things. He wrote many books, pamphlets. Uh, his, his work was distributed throughout Europe and France and England and everywhere. People were reading Luther. <clears throat> um, he translated the Bible into German. Uh, he asserted, as I say, these cardinal doctrines of the Reformation, sola scriptura, and sola fide, and so forth. Um, and he started organizing the Reformation, the Lutheran Reformation. Uh, so I mentioned here on page five, number seven, he rejected the Catholic belief in transubstantiation. Remember I said that's the belief that in the Mass, the priest is able to magically somehow transform the elements into the actual body and blood of Christ. Of course, that's not true. But Luther had a different view. He, he, he backed away a little bit from that. He had this view called, that's commonly called, that's ca called 
in Lutheranism, consubstantiation. And he says uh, this means that Christ is present in the elements, but, he's, but, the element, but the elements are not changed into Christ. And the language they use is Christ is present in, with, and under the elements of bread and wine. So as you take these elements, you're actually partaking of Christ. Now that's not true. The true New Testament view, as we'll see, is that uh, these are symbols. That it's a, the Lord's Supper is a memorial. We're remembering. Uh, not, the elements are not changed into anything. But that's the Lutheran view, a little step away from Roman Catholic transubstantiation, but not too far. And you say, can you explain what that means? No, I don't really understand what, what all this, what the Lutheran view exactly means here, but except to say you are somehow partaking of Christ actually. Uh, number eight here, um, page six, in page five, I guess, page six. Um, I say Luther continued the practice of infant baptism. Now, this is a problem we'll see with the reformers. Uh, they continue the practice of infant baptism. Now, early on, he had different explanations for this. First, he argued that the godparents believed in the place of the infant. Many denominations have godparents, and the purpose of the godparents is they express faith for the infant. And uh, later, he claimed that infants do believe. He cited John the Baptist in the womb. And so Lutheranism, Lutherans believe today that baptism regenerates the infant. That is, the infant has faith. So that's true in the Lutheran church today. When they baptize someone, the Lutheran, a baby, the, the baby has faith. Uh, now, they don't do this for adults. Adults, they believe, and then they're baptized. But for infants, they have faith. Now, the faith can be lost. Lutherans believe you can lose your salvation. So you're, you have faith as an infant, and it needs to be maintained and, and built upon. But there is faith there, according to Lutheran, Luther, and still according to Lutheran doctrine. Luther had an assistant, Melanchthon, Philip Melanchthon, and he was responsible for perpetuating Lutheranism and, and codifying it. He, he drew up what's called the Augsburg, Augsburg Confession in 1530, which was really the official creed even today of the Roman Catholic, of the Lutheran Church, I'm sorry. So he kind of codified what they believe in this Augsburg Confession. And this teaching of Luther spread, uh, particularly in Germany and particularly in Scandinavia. So the Scandinavian countries became, and still today, are you know, kind of almost officially Lutheran countries. Um, he also, uh, after, after Luther's death, there were some divisions among Lutheran pastors and, and, and scholars. So they got together, they drew up what's called the Book of Concord, Latin Concordia, uh, a kind of a statement of agreement. It includes the Augsburg Confession, all kinds of other documents. So uh, Lutheran churches will believe in what's called the Book of Concord. It's the official teaching of Lutheran churches. Um, as I say here, number 10, these Protestant denominations that we're going to study, the Lutheran, the Reformed, and the Anglican, they preserve this old relationship between the church and the state that was found in the Roman Catholic Church. So in the Roman Catholic Church, 
you know, until the Reformation, <clears throat> the church and the state were together. And so uh, the state supported the church and it was the one religion, others were persecuted. That's what happened in Lutheranism. So in Lutheran territories, Lutheranism became the only religion. Other religions were persecuted. Now these reformers, they're often called the magisterial reformers, magisterial. It's referring to the fact that the magistrate, the, the, the civil magistrate has a function in the church. As I say here, the civil magistrate had a right to authority within the church while the church could rely on the authority of the magistrate to enforce discipline, suppress heresy, maintain order. There's no real separation of the church and state in Lutheran form than the Anglican church. <clears throat> now, of course, that changes in America. You know, we have separation of church and state, but we'll talk about that later. Um, Luther himself did not spend a lot of time talking about the form of church government, but he kept the Episcopal form. So in Europe, you had... Lutheran bishops, the same as the Roman Catholic Church, and then pastors of churches. And some of that's true in Lutheran churches today. I mentioned here in number 11 that eventually uh, Roman Catholic uh, rulers went to war with Lutheran rulers and uh, fought about, you know, Lutheranism, about establishing Lutheranism. They finally... Uh, fought until they reached a peace agreement in 1552 called the Peace of Augsburg. And this meant that Lutheranism was now accepted in certain territories. You can see on figure five there a map of Germany. The, the kind of purplish is the Catholics, and the orange kind of is, remember, I only know, if you were here last time, just basic colors, red, blue, orange, yellow. I don't know these distinctions and shades, so... It's, you know, that's orange and it's purple to me. But, so the, the orange is the, uh, is, the, uh, is the Lutheran territories, the Lutheran states. And so now Lutheranism in these territories is accepted as the state religion. And they're not going to fight about it anymore. And so if you're in one of these territories, these orange territories, and you're a Roman Catholic, you can leave and go to the purple territory if you want. Or if you're in the purple territory, you're a Catholic, you could leave and go to the, Rome, to, the, to, the, to the Lutheran territories if you wanted to. Uh, so uh, now we have two recognized denominations in Western Europe. We got the Roman Catholic Church, and after 1552, we got the Lutheran Church recognized. And they're both state churches. They're both established by the state, and uh, there's no separation of church and state. That brings us to uh, page seven here, the Reformed Reformation. Now I say here that the Lutheran Reformation began with the teaching of really one man, Martin Luther primarily. Now at the same time Luther was coming to his evangelical convictions, uh, there were people throughout Europe who were, had similar ideas. They wanted to reform the church, people in France especially, in the four, late 1400s, there were others uh, who came before this, Huss and others. Uh, there were people who wanted to reform the church. And in this, what we call the reform movement, there's no single leader. I'm going to mention the two most important ones, uh, Zwingli and Calvin. 
so about the time that Luther was going through his, uh, developing his convictions, we meet this man, Ulrich Zwingli. Uh, Zwingli uh, was a studious guy. He got his master's degree at the University of Basel. This is Switzerland. Now, Switzerland is, we think of it as one country, but at that time, it's divided up at that time into 13 individual states, or called cantons. So they're all just individual little countries within what we call Switzerland, ruled by different people, and they have their own domestic and foreign policy and so forth. So uh, some of them French-speaking, some German. So he goes to the University of Basel, Zwingli does, and he gets his master's degree. He becomes a Roman Catholic priest in 1506. And uh, he starts developing, he starts developing evangelical convictions. He does this, I mentioned, because he starts studying the Greek New Testament. <clears throat> in 1516, uh, uh, a scholar by the name of Erasmus produced the first printed Greek New Testament. And this just went around Europe like crazy. And people like Zwingli got a copy, and they're studying it. Luther got a copy. He's studying. He got translated the, the New Testament into German from that. And so uh, Zwingli is coming to, he's realizing what he's reading there is not what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. What, what, what you read in the New Testament is not what the Roman Catholic teaches. So he's coming to these convictions. He was appointed a preacher in a large Catholic church in 1519. As I say, he was a real scholar in Greek and Hebrew. And uh, he came to the conclusion, really, what the Bible teaches should be binding on us, not what the church says, but just what the Bible says. And so uh, he started teaching Reformation ideas in the church. In 1523, he wrote what's called the 67 Articles, a kind of a, a Protestant uh, doctrinal statement which emphasized salvation by faith, the authority of the Bible, the headship of Christ, the rights of clerical marriage, and so forth. Uh, by 1525, a, a reformation was sort of complete in Zurich. So he's in Zurich, and this, this place is being uh, turned into a Protestant canton. And by 1525, the Mass is done away with it. It's all a series of steps. It's all done in conjunction with the governmental leaders. Again, no separation of church and state. The state is enforcing this uh, upon the people, the Protestant ideas. So uh, I mentioned here on page 8 that uh, Zwingli uh, rejected what the Bible did not really prescribe. Uh, now, at first, uh, people who study Zwingli say when you study his writings, he didn't uh, accept... Uh, baptismal generation. He, uh, at first, he seemed to speak about believer's baptism. And this, this idea that only believers should be baptized ultimately led to what's called the Anabaptists, as we'll see, uh, because they, were, they came from Zwingli's uh, uh, study and teaching and his ministry. But he changed his mind on that, and he kept uh, baptismal regeneration just like Luther did. Now, part of this is because the ch church and state are together. So when you come, when you're born, you, you, you're baptized into the church, and now you're a citizen of the state. They just couldn't conceive, as I mentioned last time, 
that you could have a state where you had different religious ideas. Everybody's got to believe the same thing. That's the only way this thing will function. That was the idea. So uh, Zwingli kept baptism with generation, but he didn't, um, I'm, I'm sorry, he, he didn't believe in baptism generation. He kept infant baptism, excuse me. He rejected uh, baptism regeneration, but kept infant baptism. And what did he base that on? He based it upon Old Testament practice, as I say here, on this analogy between Old Testament and New Testament. So he said that um, in the Old Testament, you got the practice of circumcision uh, in the Old Covenant, and the New, pra- New Testament, you got the practice of infant baptism. So they circumcised in the Old Testament infants, and now we're going to baptize them. It's not baptism with generation, but you're part of the covenant family. I say, just as Israel had two signs or seals of their covenant with God, circumcision and Passover, so the church has two signs or seals of its new covenant with God, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Now, this is exactly what's believed today in, in Reformed churches, which includes Reformed churches, Presbyterian churches, the same idea. They baptize infants, not because it's going to regenerate them, not because it saves them, that's Lutheran and Roman Catholic, but because it makes them part of the covenant community and this continuation with the Old Testament. So uh, you have this correspondence between the ordinances of the New Testament and those things in the Old Testament. Um, And also that keeps that state uh, church relationship going. So I mentioned here that the Zurich Town Council adopted his reforms and the state and church were intertwined, elected civil officials acting in accordance with only authority of the Bible. Then other places in Switzerland, other cantons, they, uh, they, they adopted many of these the Reformation ideas, including I mentioned Basel and Bern. Um, and you can see on, pay, on figure six, uh, kind of a, a map there showing the blue, the purple, are the Roman Catholic places, and the uh, orange are where the Reformation has now broken out in these cantons. Um, I mentioned here that uh, these Protestant uh, rulers in Switzerland, they wanted to unify all the Protestants against the Roman Catholic forces because the Roman Catholics were uh, actually in battle and trying to overturn these uh, cantons. And so they wanted Luther and Zwingli to get together and agree. Let's get all the Lutherans and our reform groups together. We'll have one big group. This will be stronger against the Roman Catholics. So they met together, Luther and Zwingli, at, at a place called Marlborough Castle uh, in 1529, and they found agreement on 15 of the 16 points. So they really agreed on almost everything except the Lord's Supper. Luther held this view of consubstantiation. Zwingli held what's called the memorial view, the same view we hold, that the elements are just a memorial, a symbol of, 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 the, of Christ's death and uh, his work. So uh, they couldn't agree. So they never got together. And Zwingli was uh, killed in, a, in actually a civil war between Catholic and Protestant forces. And so that's sort of the end of, of what we think of as Zwingli's Reformation there. Now we come in number six here, page nine, to 
the Reformation in another Swiss canton, Geneva. Uh, now, as I say, there were other, a lot of guys around uh, with Reformation ideas. One of them in 1532 was a French evangelist by the name of William Farrell. He began preaching Protestant doctrine. And uh, eventually, uh, Geneva began to reject Roman Catholic doctrine, accepted Protestantism. But Farrell felt like he wasn't up to the task. And so he constrained a young French acquaintance, a man by the name of John Calvin, who was passing through the city to aid the work. And so uh, John Calvin, uh, you can see there in figure seven now, the, the map in figure seven, more cantons are coming into the Reformation. John Calvin was a Frenchman too. He was born in France, very brilliant guy, went to the University of Paris at 14, got his MA. Uh, he was, father wanted to be a priest, but then changed his mind. He got a law degree. So he studied Greek and Latin Hebrew, very, very brilliant guy. So Calvin is one of the great, the geniuses of, <laughs> of the world. I mean, he was just a brilliant, brilliant guy, unbelievably brilliant. He wrote commentaries on every book of the Bible except Revelation. Um, sometime between 1553 and 1533 and 1534, Calvin experienced a conversion, what he called a sudden conversion. And so he had to leave Catholic France. Uh, France was persecuting any Protestant ideas, any Protestant believers. So he left and at, uh, he went to Basel another canton that accepted Reformation, and he, at age 26, he wrote the first edition of what's called the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Uh, it was published in Latin in 1536. I mention here that this was first as a catechism of just six chapters, questions and answers, like the Westminster Catechism. It would eventually became 80 chapters in his final edition in 1559. And as I say, it's Many say it's the most orderly and systematic presentation of doctrine of the Christian life the Reformation produced. Still widely used today. It's two, my, my set at home is two volumes, very thick volumes. And we still read it. We still consult it. People, people cite it. Uh, it's a tremendous piece of work. I mentioned on uh, number 10 here that Calvin was forced to pass through Geneva in 1536. And uh, he was compelled, uh, put upon by Farrell, to stay there and to help with the Reformation. So he did. And so working with the city council, they made more changes, more, more uh, Protestant ideas were brought in. Uh, they changed the mass and excommunication, the catechism. They did all kinds of things, changed marriage laws. Um, and they, the civil authorities enforced these ideas. Again, you've got merging of state and church, church-state together. Um, Calvin had to leave in 1538. There was some opposition. He goes to Strasbourg for three years, but he comes back uh, in 1550, uh, 1541, and he stays there the rest of his life. In 1559, he establishes what's called the Academy, where that attracted a lot of people from all over Europe to come there. People like John Knox we'll talk about, who went back to Scotland and led a Reformation. Uh, Englishmen who helped in the Reformation in England later on and so forth. Calvin, as I say here in number 12, believed in Sola Scriptura. Uh, 66 books of the canon are infallible, inspired. 
He emphasized, you know, that, we, that what we, everything is to the glory of God alone. Um, so uh, his, th- his theology is called Calvinism. Calvinism. It's often expressed in this thing, tulip. We'll t- I'm going to talk about Calvinism later on when we talk about Arminianism, but I won't develop it right now. Now, Calvin had a different view of the Lord's Supper. Remember, uh, the Roman Catholic view is uh, transubstantiation, and Luther had consubstantiation, and Zwingli had the memorial view, which we believe is the correct view. Uh, But Calvin had another view um, that uh, is called the spiritual presence view. He he felt that that in the elements, when you take the elements, uh, Christ is present there spiritually, not actually as he is in Lutheranism, but spiritually, the spiritual presence view. And this is the common view in Reformed Presbyterian churches today. Uh, he held on to infant baptism using that same analogy that Zwingli did, the analogy between the old covenant sign of circumcision and the new covenant sign of baptism. So these are unfortunate things that infant baptism continued. It's clearly an unbiblical truly unbiblical idea and very unfortunate, but it continued. I mentioned here on 14 that Calvin broke with the Episcopal form of church government that we had in Roman Catholic uh, theology and in Lutheranism, and he said that a plurality of elders should rule the church. And so he laid the groundwork for what's called the Presbyterian form. And he said there's two different kind of elders in the church. There's ruling elders and there's teaching elders. But these elders rule the church. Now we have elders in our church, but we don't rule the church. We don't. <laughs> we have congregationally governed church, elder-led. So elders lead the church, they don't govern the church. But in the Presbyterian church, they rule the church. Um, as I say here, Calvin's influence went well beyond Geneva, his institutes, his pattern of government, his academy, and he influenced all kinds of people. People in France, what's called the Huguenots, uh, uh, Protestants there, Scotland, Netherlands, the Dutch Reformers, we'll see, and all kinds of places, England especially, and eventually America we'll, we'll study. And you can see there on the figure eight that uh, the spread of Calvinism of Reformed teaching throughout Europe. Now you see that last diagram, and I'll close here, is uh, one we'll be following. This is the Protestant denominations here, the last uh, diagram there, and you can see 1517, and then there's a line that goes up to Lutheran, Lutheran, the first Reformation, and then 1520, around 1520 you get the Reform. You get Zwingli and Calvin in that Reform line. And others come off that, the Anabaptist, the Anglican, the Presbyterian, the Baptist, as we'll see, and ultimately the Methodist. But it's 12.02. (laughs) I've gone over time. We'll stop there, and Lord willing, see you next time. If you missed lesson one, it's over there, and also it's online. Thank you so much.